Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, you'll be listening to PSY 342, Psychology of the Exceptional Child. I hope you listen and enjoy. This is Class 2, Session 2. We've been talking about um, children who were uh, from minority status who have been disproportionately represented in special ed. Remember, they're overrepresented when it comes to some of the behavior issues or emotional disabilities and for learning disabilities and underrepresented when it comes to gifted and talented. We looked at some of those factors as to why that might be and now we're going to look at the consequences of the disproportional representation that occurs. One of the things that really is a problem is that for some children um, who have been referred for these behavior problems or learning disabilities, um, we're getting an inferior education for these children. It's certainly not working as well for them um, as they are being put into special ed, um, possibly we think that they are incapable of doing some of the work that they might be very capable of doing with a little bit of encouragement. And so their education is is definitely less effective. And that increases the risk for underachievement. We are oftentimes um, being okay with having the work not be as good. And it increases the level of possibility for school dropout. If we've had underachieving um, individuals then they oftentimes aren't doing well and don't pass and then eventually they decide that school's not fun and they drop out. Um, if you drop out without a high school degree then the job opportunities are going to definitely be limited to um, very lower income level jobs with not very much autonomy and then this would be um, something that would be very hard to overcome later in life. So we really are um, having quite serious consequences when it comes to this. So some innovations for assessment in terms of deciding which of our children you know, have exceptionalities might be to really look at the tasks that we are given. Um, this might be true for the assessment tasks that we would give, the battery tests there, and also in the classroom. And really look to see if we are um, having any kind of cultural bias on the task questions that we ask. Um, we want to make sure that we're not making this easier for some children who have had um, maybe more majority culture type upbringing versus some minority culture upbringing. So if I'm talking about um, an item even on the test, like a cup and saucer, let's just think of that. And um, if our families don't use cup and saucers, they use mugs. Um, we might be really hurting some of our children um, who've not been exposed to that cup and saucer. All right, so if we, you know, really are talking about things that are just, um, you know, very much um, one of the subcultures wouldn't know, we have to be very careful about that. Um, another thing we need to think about, and this is going to come back up as we look at uh, gifted education later, is that there's lots of different ways of looking at intelligence. Um, Howard Garner proposes eight different types of intelligence and says there are multiple intelligences 
but schools typically only recognize a few of those and that we may need to kind of open up and broaden our version of what intelligence actually is. Um, some of our schools are moving to a portfolio assessment, which um, really takes the child's work in the classroom that they've been doing throughout that school year then you'll see that there's several things listed here writing samples when we've asked them to write a story um, artwork um, work samples maybe from a workbook math problems things like that and we're going to show the child's progress over that school year using these different indicators and we've gathered it over a period of time oftentimes months to see um, where the child is progressing and we can see that um, clearly usually the strengths and weaknesses are going to show up if the you know, say there's a math weakness it should be kind of showing and we continue to see that throughout the semester or the year um, things where they're strong we'll be able to tell that as well and these are very helpful um, in giving us progress um, over the year and so we're not giving just a static number of one test we're looking at many of these things together to get a better picture of how our child is doing um, when we're working with a child who is bilingual and who also has a disability um, we're going to have to do things a little bit differently when we do the the classroom assessment now remember for assessment the, the initial assessment to decide there's a disability that test has to be done non-discriminatorily and it has to be in the native language but in a classroom setting we don't have to do that um, so we've assessed first with native language we've assessed with english as best we can and now in the classroom we'll be giving other tests and again most of our teachers really just know english and wouldn't be able to do a lot of native language testing if there is no disability we don't see one then we don't have to even do the evaluation in um, a language other than English we have to have really a good reason for this so if we're tested for gifted that's not considered a disability and we can test that child in English if we're bringing them up because we suspect an exceptionality that's a disability then yes that assessment has to be done in the native language um, all schools should provide options for children that allow them to show their strengths and so we want multiple assessment tools not something that's the same for every single test um, that we would give and so you may have been in a class where you have some quizzes uh, like this one that would be multiple choice but you would also have some writing assignments which would be a different type of assessment tool and so you want to make sure that you're doing that so that each person can demonstrate strengths and if there's an area where they might have a little bit of weakness there'd be something else to um, be a strength to balance that out um, when we are doing an evaluation we want to make sure that all of our tests show no cultural bias at all um, or linguistic bias and we want to make sure that we're doing that um, throughout any assessment that we might give um, if we do have a child who is linguistically different um, and we just don't have the option for bilingual education at our facility some schools just do not uh, have teachers on staff who can can speak other languages we could bring in an interpreter so that we would be able to interact 
um, with the particular child. Now, we'll phase them out as their English skills do get better. And obviously, we would want to involve the parents, but as you remember, that's part of our idea law that parents are always involved in what we are doing. Um, when we look at disabilities, you're going to find that as you work with individuals from different cultures, they may have reactions that are very different from that that you would have when you think about a disability because cultures see disability in different ways. I, some look at it as fate, you know, that it's just kind of luck of the draw and this is what happened and they're usually fairly accepting of it. Some see this as a spiritual reason why they may have this and this could be something like um, because you sinned, you were punished by having a child with a disability or you sinned and you had a disability. Um, the social taboos are sort of similar to the concept of sinning that you did something that you shouldn't have done and you are you violated some norms and so you're being punished um, for that. Um, intergenerational retribution is the view that the grandparents did something and they're being paid back through the fact that maybe a grandchild has a disability. Um, and that is something that a lot of cultures do believe. And the main thing that you want to note, you don't have to agree with the way um, you're, the family you're working with might see a disability, but you want to be sensitive to whatever view that they might have and, and be very respectful of that view. When it comes to parents and, and families, we're seeing that um, when we have a child with disability, the component that was left out for many years is the family. And we now realize they are a huge component when it comes to um, getting the skill sets up for these children. They are their primary teachers. And so when we work with the family, we need to make sure we understand what their concerns are and try to address those concerns in a way that they would be comfortable with. Um, Anytime you have a new baby, I know y'all probably had friends and relatives who've had children, it's, it's a huge impact on how the family will function. You know, the first baby shifts things a lot, and that second baby is a big change, and then even the others, maybe not as huge of a change, but certainly the you know, sibling order changes, and um, there's just a lot of effects there. Um, if your child has a disability, it's a, a much stronger effect because it means that the expectations that we had in our mind are not going to be the reality of life. And so we all dream of this, you know, healthy, happy child. And now we have a child who may have some kind of medical disorder. And it really um, takes some of the joy out of the birth of that child. And it does mean a huge adjustment for the family. Um, we're seeing parents differently now, and it, years ago when we worked with these children, um, the professionals would just leave the family out, and they were just given these mandates, here's what you need to do in working with your children. And sometimes that was to institutionalize the child. Uh, we now, however, know that if we can get families involved with um, the way that we're working with our children, that we will have a much more successful outcome and the skills of the child will definitely improve. 
Um, so we try to get insight from the parents and get um, ideas about what they see the child um, capabilities to be, the concerns that they have, where would they like to see improvement with the child's skills. Um, we also, also want to understand that we do have laws, that there are federal laws that mandate parent involvement when it comes to working with children with exceptionalities. Um, hopefully you remember that last time we talked about the IFSP or the Individual Family Service Plans that are written for those younger children starting at birth and usually up to uh, about age two, but they could go, remember, a little bit older than that. And we're going to stop with that.